And that's what we've seen with the companies that we've worked with, right? Where they know they have to transform. They know they have challenges in front of them. But as soon as you're able to help the decision makers have agency and play with the decision, they start to say, okay, I understand the trade-offs of what I'm doing. And so for me, that was really a, okay, we're, we're building the right thing here. For anyone who's ever played SimCity, you know that moment when everything starts to come together and the world that you've built actually starts to hum and work. What if we could take that type of platform where you can tinker with things and test new environments and apply it to real world companies with a focus on how they can create products and business structures that will work in harmony with the world. To use this idea of SimCity as a jumping off point for real world climate change solutions. My name is Lexi Faber. Welcome to Who's Saving the Planet. At Sea Change, our goal is bringing together adventurous minds to build relationships and focus on solutions to some of the biggest problems on the planet. This isn't your typical conference and is unlike any event that I know. It's immersive and intimate and strikes a balance between work and play. It's a place where you're encouraged to think and act outside the box and be challenged by new ideas and experiences. The people and points of view in attendance are incredibly diverse, but all share an incredible commonality, a strong drive to learn from new perspectives and ideas. We are more innovative, productive, creative, and capable when we act with the support of other passionate people. That's why Sea Change exists. I highly recommend joining us September 12 through 14, 2023 to take part and experience it for yourself. Hope to see you there. On the podcast today, we have Karthik Balakarishnan. He is the co-founder and president of Actual. Actual is a startup that is taking that idea of creating a SimCity-like environment and applying it to real-world companies. In their words, they say they're building an impact platform to accelerate the world's response by making green infrastructure faster to plan, less expensive to build, and easier to optimize. In addition to being the president of Actual, Karthik is a serial entrepreneur, a PhD candidate at Stanford University, and just dabbled in aerospace, because why not? Okay, here's my conversation with Karthik, the co-founder and president of Actual. Karthik Balakrishnan. Welcome to Who's Saving the Planet. Thanks for having me on today. I'm very excited to dig into this because I am more than a little bit confused by it. And that is exciting for me. Uh, Not that I'm not confused regularly. I am. As the father of two small children, I live my days in almost consistent befuddlement. But when it comes to climate change, specifically carbon, understanding how software is helping us decode our impact on the planet, I I thought I had kind of a handle on it, but you've come to me with something that really is expanding my conception of it. So without further ado, give me the pitch. What is the rundown of what actual is and what specific problem you guys are solving? Yeah. So software is a big space. Climate is a big space. And there's a lot of solutions that are needed. We're focusing on helping decision makers, specifically capital decision makers, so people who have budgets and have to decide what to spend those budgets on, make sustainable spending decisions when it comes to the assets that they own, they operate, and in their supply chain. So if you have factories Mm -hmm. or warehouses or trucks, or you have partners who are operating farms that are providing you with raw materials or with mines, what investments do you actually need to make in order to get to your sustainability goals? Mm -hmm. Let's use a case study to sort of 
to, to bucket this, right? So pick pick an industry that you want to use as a case study that will be accessible for most everyday people. Yeah. So let's talk about um, EV trucks or hydrogen trucks, zero emissions trucking. Okay. Zero emissions trucking. So we're talking like long haul trucking, not your, your ride personal. Okay. So here's the problem, right? We know that we need to get goods across the country. And in order to do so, we still use trucking as well as intermodal truck things like trains and planes, but trucking still massive industry. It is being slowly electrified as many things are, but there's lots of challenges. So I, Lex, I own a trucking company and I have a fleet of 10 currently diesel powered trucks or do, are they electric trucks? Oh, let's say they're diesel trucks. So standard trucks that you can buy. Yeah. They're diesel trucks. Okay. I have 10 diesel trucks. I am now sitting in a meeting with you and I'm saying, okay, what will you do for me to help me achieve my climate goals as the owner of these 10 diesel trucks? So let's make this actually a more interesting problem. Let's say that you own 10,000 trucks and 10,000 trucks and, okay. and you're operating in pretty much every state. So you're transporting live loads. So cattle, chicken, what have you, you're transporting, uh, basically critical freight. You're transporting all sorts of things all across, right? right? So you you basically, here's a truck, here's a, uh, here's a trailer, we'll move stuff from point A to point B. And that's been your business, right? right? Someone calls you up, you have uh, scheduled loads, you have on-demand loads, and it's, you've got a business that's running. And now suddenly, uh, the state of California comes out and says, well, you know, we're going to start regulating your emissions. We're going to basically make mm-hmm. you phase out the trucks that you have. Other states start to jump on board. Um, you're now mm-hmm. starting to see the price of you know, diesel go up as the price of oil goes up and it becomes a lot more volatile. Um, and you're now starting to think, well, what do I do about this? And that's really where a lot of folks are today is the, what do I do about this? Um, mm-hmm. so where the decision, where, where the conversation typically starts for a lot of folks is they think it's purely a, let me pick a technology and go, do I pick electric trucks or hydrogen trucks? But as soon right. as you start diving into the details, you realize that as a trucking company, there is a lot of infrastructure that your operations relies on that doesn't translate over into hydrogen or electric trucks. And suddenly you now have to start thinking about that infrastructure, your training, your maintenance, your contracts, a whole bunch of supporting things that you've more or less taken for granted for the last 50 years of running the business the way it's been running. Mm -hmm. And one of the most complex things is that a lot of this infrastructure is out of your direct control. So for example, if you're bringing a load from say LA to New York, there's truck stops along the way. You may have relief drivers, you may have, you know, any number of things that allow you to complete that journey and to bring that trailer from point A to point B in whatever time you've, you've said you're going to take it. So for example, you might have contracts with truck stops, um, and you might have preferred fueling vendors. You might have maintenance agreements along the way. So if the, the driver, if there's a breakdown, you can get a tow and you can get a repair. You might have spares that are stationed all along the way. As soon as you start to change, let's say to an electric truck, where are you going to charge those? Are the existing truck stops going to be able to charge the trucks that you have, or do you have to go and renegotiate those contracts? Are the maintenance contracts that you have able to actually uh, carry over to servicing electric trucks, or do you have to go find new maintenance partners? Um, and that problem kind of doubles as soon as you start thinking about, well, do I buy hydrogen trucks versus electric trucks? Where's the hydrogen coming from? How's all that happening? So it starts to kind of explode in complexity, shall we say? Um, right. And that's really where um, Actual is quite valuable is in helping working through that scenario, because in order to get from what you have today to whatever your zero emissions trucking state is going to look like, that is a transformation. 
So in the same way that we have digital transformation in the past, this is a sustainability transformation. It's reinventing of the business in many ways. Um, so right. we're providing the software to help do that planning. So I committed the sin of going to business school. And at business school, I was surrounded by a fleet of consultants. <laughs> and much of what you are describing to me sounds like the traditional work of management consultants, mm-hmm. right? Giant company says, I want to do big thing, but I don't know how to do it. And so Bain or McKinsey or what have you would say, no problem for the low, low price of $100,000 a week. We will staff this team of 20 smart people or what have you to work through, like you said, each individual part of that problem, because it is an incredibly complex, multifaceted, interrelated problem that you're dealing with. (laughs) What you are saying is that you can now remove the need for this small army of like actual service providers of people who are going through and doing that with a piece of software that you guys are developing. Is that to- is that totally off base or is that somewhat in the realm? It's complementary, in fact. So the way that we think about it is that software does not really replace human judgment, human intuition, human decision-making, what it can do is augment and help the humans that are coming in, you know, and, and helping work through these challenges, actually build an executable plan. Because okay. one of the things that consultants do really well is understand the nuances of each business, right? They can come in, they can do the interviews, they can pull the information, they can pull the data and say, well, how is company A different from company B? As opposed to just, mm-hmm. you know, here is a list of 15 bullet points that we're going to give to everybody. What is your specific plan? The mm-hmm. challenge that a lot of companies have is once the consultancy comes in and gives the plan, every plan is out of date the moment you hit save and print. Like that's just, just, sure. just kind of a reality. And so how do you build a living plan knowing that the transformation is going to take years and years and years and years? If you've got 10,000 trucks, you're not going to wave a magic wand and suddenly they've all been replaced. There's a roadmap probably over the next 15 years of replacing those trucks, maybe over the next 20 years. And so mm-hmm. having a system where the decisions are being made and communicated, but is augmented by humans. I think our philosophy really is not that software replaces human decision-making, but rather that software can augment human decision-making and can make it easier for these really complex multi-stakeholder challenges to actually live in one spot so that everyone is looking at the same plan over the next 20 years as the transformation is happening. So intrinsic about this is also having access to good data Mm -hmm. as it is being produced to be able to like sort of update this mental model of the world, right? Um, Shit in, shit out, as as is the case with with any model, right? And now you're magnifying that across this incredibly complex, just living within the world of trucking, right? I know you guys are not like a trucking company. Yep. You do this for many different industries. And so that that the degree of that complexity, I, I'm sure it increases either at a logarithmic or exponential scale, but I, I don't pretend to know math well enough to know the difference between those two. Um, how do you get around this problem of relying on assumptions or heuristics where there is not good data because if what you're trying to do is actually achieve a reduction in something that is quantifiable that is sort of the carbon that is emitted to take one example you need that can be measured and so everything leading up to those decisions also needs to have a degree of validity to it if you don't achieve that measurable outcome so the data piece is really interesting because i think that folks always have a tendency to say well the first step we have to do is collect a bunch of data. And 
it turns out that there's so much data out there that you can spend multiple careers collecting data, building a data lake without knowing if the data is actually relevant to the decision that you're making. The other challenge with data is that at the, at the end of the day, you know, carbon is important, but carbon is not the only sustainability metric that uh, a business needs to look at. Then there's social impacts. Um, for example, with trucking, um, there are uh, all sorts of studies out there that, that show a direct correlation between how close you live to trucking corridors and the rate at which you get asthma um, and your life expectancy mm-hmm. and things like that. And some of that's carbon related, but a lot of it is noxes and soxes and tire uh, particulate pollution and things like that. But beyond that, there's also the financial metrics uh, in terms of if I make a decision, am I still going to be a viable business? Am I still going to have returns and revenue and things like that? So the way that we think about data is you start with the science. You start by understanding the kind of decisions you're going to make and the science that underpins the technologies that you're deploying and what those operations look like. And you constrain the space of data that you need to collect. Once you've done that, you have a really clear picture that says, this piece of data is going to make a material impact in the decision that I can make. And one of the really kind of scary things for a lot of organizations about transformation is you're doing something that you haven't done before, which means that in many cases, the data simply isn't there. For example, what is the reliability of a long haul hydrogen trucking fleet? The, the data is not there, question. right? Like, who knows? <laughs> exactly. you know? How am I going to predict the electric charging grid as it is being currently built across the country? Like, what happens if things break down? And if, like, so many holes to fill when you are talking about this transformational yep. process that we are all living in. That's exactly correct. And so the way that we think about this is that because these transformations take a long time, having the ability to say, here's the piece of data that I need to make a good decision means that you can actually do pilot Deployments. Instead of 10,000 trucks, let's deploy 10 trucks, right? But I know what data I need to collect from those 10 trucks to make the next 100 trucks viable. So you're working in close partnership then with these businesses to say, hey, here's our best guess based on what the model says. And we now need to validate that with the data as it is produced by you in the actual world running, you know, not the experiment, your business, but in this case, the experiment. Exactly. And that's where it becomes very complementary with the consultancies and with the subject matter experts and, and, and those folks, because they can be that conduit um, as we right. provide the software to, to make that, that all happen. So how would you describe this then in like, because I have an idea and I'm curious what yours is, but if you're going to break down what you guys do in like five words or mm-hmm. less, right? Something, something just incredibly small, what would it be? I would say that we help green light capital investment. I was going with predict the future. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I guess those are... Uh, I don't know, perhaps the same if if it works out well, but green light capital investment. So you're thinking about this very specifically as an instrument to allocate money. Yes, because at the end of the day, you know, I've got a ton of friends that I went to grad school with um, who are still working in labs, developing technologies and all these kind of things to deal with climate and sustainability. And if you're not spending the money signing the purchase orders to take that technology and deploy it in your supply chain, in your operations, it doesn't matter how great the technology is, right? We have the technology today to meet the climate goals of 2030. The question is a matter of capital investment in scaling the production of that technology and scaling the deployment of that technology. 
Well, this is actually something we talk about quite a bit. It's it's also much more than that, right? It is what is the consumer adoption going to be of these particular products that are going to spur mm-hmm. more investment in them from a, the bottoms up market? What are the legislative policies going to be? Yeah. Um, how is the how what is the competition going to be from the different technologies? What about the global uh, resource constraint that will be? I mean, you know, the, the, there's all of these things, yes. and that's that's why I'm like very difficult to predict the future. Given all of these things that are coming in, very yeah. difficult to be able to say, here, make this choice. We expect this outcome. This is this is why most of the consultants in the riders of their contract, they caveat with like, we will not be held accountable for yes. the, the like thing that yeah. happens after we, as you said, save and print. Mm-hmm. So what do you guys think about that, right? Like if this is the business of greenlighting capital allocation, as you said, there is that thing that happens next which is the capital is in theory allocated. <laughs> and thus your role in this is material to the success or failure of that business. How, do, how does this make you feel, I suppose? It's like, I don't know, what, what's your thought on that? Yeah, well, I think, I think the key thing here, right, is that what we're actually doing with, the, with what we're building is providing the decision makers at these companies the ability to play through um, the options in front of them, right? So I think what typically happens is you talk to, you know, some smart experts and they listen to your problems and they, they go away and they come back with a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many cases, I think one of the big reasons that we see this execution gap where decision makers don't feel comfortable signing that purchase order is because they don't really have a sense of agency, if you will, in terms of why is the plan that's in front of me the way it is? Can I play with the plan? Can I adjust the plan? And so what we're really providing, is not a plan. We're providing a sandbox for these experts to construct what the option space looks like, but then giving those decision makers the ability to interact with the plan, adjust variables, adjust the assumptions and say, you know what, this makes sense to me, or this does not make sense to me. At the end of the day, actual is not coming in and saying, here's your plan, here's what you're going to do. What actual is doing is saying, here's a piece of software that allows you to make these decisions and play with the assumptions and come to a consensus on what does my next spending look like? Right. But as you were saying that, it's funny that like the name of the company is actual as though like it is, it is, it is a, <laughs> the, the definition of actual is not something which is theoretical. It is, That's it, is manif- it is manifest. And so in every way, it is something that is not, you know, suspect or deterministic depending on variables that we don't know. It's actual. <laughs> Now, everything that you just described is dependent on having, like we said before, good data, right? Mm -hmm. You can build a wonderful model, but if that model is constrained by the quality of the data, that will be, that will, that will be the limiting factor, right? Of the Mm -hmm. ability to predict the future at Greenlight Projects. And the way that you described getting that data was with this partnership with the companies themselves. So this is sort of like a classic network effects thing where Mm -hmm. the more access to more data you have, the more valuable you have, the more people need to use the product, the more data you get and more off to the races. But the hardest part of starting that is getting that wheel spinning. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always lonely if Tom is your only friend on MySpace. For those of us out here who understand that. <laughs> um, so how did you go about doing that? How did you get that wheel spin started to spin when you when you didn't have anything to really offer from that real-time data and you were using the same data sets that were available to everyone? So I think this is the key piece, right? Is that the, the data sets that are available to everyone are not specific to a business, 
they're not, in many cases, they're just industry standards or industry averages. Um, when you look at carbon accounting, for example, it's very hard to get down to facility level. Most carbon accounting doesn't go down to facility level. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means is that what the customers are looking for is not necessarily facility level data. They're looking for a place to fit that facility level data into and a reason to justify collecting that facility level data. So that's where this approach that we're taking is really quite valuable as we're saying, here's the pieces of information that are going to make this model better. So we can justify your investment in that data collection. So instead of saying, well, we think data is important. So go instrument everything, go buy access to every data set, and let's build the data lake in the hope that one day that data is valuable. We're inverting the problem a little bit. And we're saying data is very valuable, but we understand that there's an organizational lift to getting that access, right? Data might exist, but it might live in a different silo. It might be in one of your customer or supplier sites. It might be not digitized. We've seen that quite a bit where there's information that is literally on paper. And so someone mm -hmm. has to go and put it into a database. So helping break down those organizational barriers is in many ways, one of the biggest challenges to a data approach. And so what we're really doing is saying, yes, here's a science-based module that represents your business and your options for transformation. And here are the inputs that are necessary to make that an investable thing. Now you have five or six pieces of information that you need to go collect as opposed to an open-ended multi-year data collection problem. Well, that's also, so you're putting it back on them. This, this is this is the idea that we have. Here are the holes that we have. So we're going to take your, if they have unknown unknowns, you are helping them understand what those unknown unknowns are, bring them into the known unknown category, and then they fill that box with the data that they have from real world experiences. That's absolutely correct. And I think the the, the reality is that there's no good way around that. It's very hard to say, well, I'm going to automatically provide a data set that goes down to, to the level that you need to be able to make a capital investment without you doing any work to put that information in. Is the use case for this ubiquitous? It's very much focused on organizations that either control the assets that need investment or have the ability to direct investment into those assets. So we're very much focused on industries with real world footprints who have ownership or control over their factories and their trucks and their farms and their warehouses and all those kind of things. Um, and especially for the way that we're operating, we're focused on organizations that have a lot of scale, where they're looking at solving a similar looking problem in a lot of different places where the solutions can vary quite dramatically. So going back to the trucking example of hydrogen versus electric, you're probably going to end up with a fleet that has both hydrogen and electric trucks, depending mm -hmm. on the mission depending on the region, depending on the kind of contracts you've been able to sign, et cetera. So being able to build that, um, that thing out. Um, we're not really a great fit, for example, if you are a SaaS company, because you don't control your assets. You're, everything is OPEX, right? Um, and we're not necessarily a great fit if you are basically white labeling other products um, and you don't have control over how those products are being produced or you don't have leverage over how those products are being produced. So we're going essentially to both ends of the supply chain where there's scale and impact and help it connect those. But that's really our focus, knowing that climate is a much bigger problem than that particular article. 
I think you're thinking too small because you do, of course, once you have the access to all of the information that is behind the white labeled products or the SaaS companies that are drawing services from the grid or whatever they're sort of like employees are doing. That that kind of that basically just means like, well, we only can service the material world. That's most of it. You know, like the other things are relatively derivative when it comes to the effect on climate change. Like the material world, the process of making things, that's a really big chunk. It is. If not, if not the vast majority of the things that we do on this world to affect the future of the planet. That's absolutely true. I think the, um, the thing, though, is that there's a lot of surface area beyond the material world, right? So when you look at, for example, consumer preferences and, and how do you shift that? But I'm not sure you're worried about that, right? You don't really care what happens after the product leaves the door. You're just, you're cradle to gate, if you will. And then maybe some cradle to grave if like you're worried about recycling and how that would happen. But, but the buying and selling, the market of it is not your purview. I think that's true um, to some extent, right? The consumer preferences are going to drive in many cases what products are going to get produced, right? Again, you have a business, right? And so you need to build things that, that people want. And if you're producing something that is good for the environment that no one wants, you're going to be out of business. And so being able to meet that business constraint is, is of course, going to be important. But yeah, we're not in the business necessarily of shifting consumer preferences or, you know, here's how you decarbonize your life. We're very much in the business of, at a large scale, um, helping to uh, clean up major industries. Right. But the material world, by the way, has a lot of um, individualized actions, right? So if you have a house and you're thinking of replacing a, a gas furnace with a heat pump, um, if you're thinking of replacing a gas stove with an induction stove or things like that, um, those are huge impacts. Um, but that, those are impacts that happen on an individual level or a, a group level that we don't touch, right? So when I say that we're focusing on a particular part of the problem, there's a lot of solutions that have to get layered to get to where we're going. And we're you know, we're focused on a very specific set of, um, of challenges from a business school perspective. Like, of course you focus on the attainable market that you think you're going to have the biggest swing at and consumers are hard and giant companies that make multi-million decisions about buying software, better expected value. I do think that at its core is the same thing, right? If I'm going to make a decision, yep. whether it's me buying something as a person or as the CEO of a multinational company, mm-hmm. that decision needs to be grounded in data. And if the premise of your company is to say, we will be able to collect and extrapolate that data better than others can, that applies to just decisions, mm-hmm. you know, sort of regardless of scope. And obviously you get paid more for the bigger decisions. So like start there. I get... Uh, and behind that, it's a mistake that I make myself because I started with the small one, but you start with the big ones. I get that. I want to um, switch gears a little bit then. Why did you start this company? So it was super interesting for me. Um, the journey that I, that I took to come upon this problem along with the journey of my, my two co-founders and kind of realizing this is something that the three of us could, could really solve. My background originally started in aerospace engineering. Uh, and then uh, started a consumer electronics company, which to me was extremely eye-opening because people talk about supply chains and how complex they are. They don't really realize how complex a supply chain is until you try to build one, um, until you try to source 
materials that uh, people are not really making because the demand isn't there. So you've got to go and create that demand. Then you've got to set up the factories and then you kind of go end to end. And that really helped me understand the relevance of, yes, data is important, but the data that's available, unless you go and collect it relevant to your site, may not be that 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 useful or that good. So that for me was a, a really eye-opening uh, experience building and, and operating that supply chain and, and sort of the, the process of going from uh, whiteboard to high volume mass production for a product. Um, after we got acquired, I went back into aerospace um, and I started a program focused on digital transformation of the air traffic control system. So how do we go from air traffic control system um, that was really kind of 1940s, 1950s architecture of people talking to each other and making decisions to something that is uh, you know, human as a uh, as a conductor more than a human making every single decision. So how do you enable delivery drones and air taxis and autonomous cargo jets and all these kind of things? And I spent a lot of time talking with regulators and capital decision makers around the world. And one of the things that was really interesting to me was I think everyone understood that change is necessary. Everyone still understands that change is necessary. And you're seeing a lot of activity from regulatory bodies all around the world um, to transform this infrastructure. But the fact of the matter is that we've spent probably north of a trillion dollars worldwide on the air traffic control system that we have today. There's a huge sunk cost. There's huge inertia. And it's a very safety critical system, right? You expect the system to work. And so there's this thing of, well, if we make things different, what new failure modes are we introducing? What new challenges are we introducing? And as I spent time talking with transportation ministers and transportation officials around the world, one of the things that became really apparent to me was that this challenge of decision-making of, you know, here's a transformation of an existing infrastructure that the world relies on was a really general problem that was the from my perspective, one of the big barriers to dealing with climate sustainability as well, which is we have infrastructure in the world. When I plug in a phone into the wall, it's going to get charged, whether it's a coal plant or a nuclear plant or a solar plant on the other end of that. And so convincing folks to go and rip out their existing infrastructure, you know, yeah, let's, let's get rid of lanes and parking for cars and put in bike lanes. That's a very simple thing to do, but you see a lot of uh, pushback on things like that. As you start to go bigger and bigger and bigger with more and more dollars, that pushback becomes much bigger as well. And that was one of the things realizing, you know, that for me, um, that if you can help people make decisions, if you can help people understand the challenges and the trade-offs of not doing anything, the challenges and trade-offs of the system they have in front of them versus what's to come, that can drive change. Um, so got together with my co-founders, uh, Derek and Rajesh, um, Derek's background is, is super interesting, uh, game design background, but also Rhodes scholar, cognitive psychologist, um, it's, you know, cognitive science. Um, and it's one of these, uh, things where as soon as you can better understand how people make decisions and how to help people make better decisions, you can start to actually see people making better decisions. And that's what we've seen with uh, the, the companies that we've worked with, right? Where they know they have to transform. They know they have challenges in front of them. But as soon as you're able to help the decision makers have agency and play with uh, the decision, they start to say, okay, I understand the trade-offs of what I'm doing. 
And so for me, that was really a, okay, we're, we're building the right thing here. If that were true, one of two things needs to also be true. Either before this, no one had the ability to make, to understand the consequences of their decisions. Or they did have the ability and there were other more powerful incentives or forces that negated them choosing that path. Because what we have seen is that we've had quite a lot of information and data over the last at least two decades about the effect of human activity on the planet. And we have not mitigated that and we are continuing to not mitigate that. And so the lack of good data, if that argument's true, then why has it not worked so far? And how will this be the sea change that unlocks all of this altruistic decision-making or humanitarian or sort of even just utilitarian, if you want to think about the survival of the species decision-making? Like, what took us so long? I think there's a couple things. I think the first thing is that you actually need to tie the decision-making back to the bottom line of the company. So is it that like the economic environment has changed where now there's incentives and the technology is cheaper and so we're at a tipping point? That, that's a big part of it, right? Is, is helping people understand that, you know, yes, you're a trucking company and you've been, you've been using diesel for the last, you know, 50 years, but guess what? If you switch to electric or hydrogen trucks, you're no longer at the mercy of various forces. You have better economics, you have better reliability and longevity and things like that. And that helps you make a sense. So what if, what if the data says the difference? What if the data says to me, yes, you can make this change, but um, it's going to cost you 10 cents more per mile? Then people have to make that decision about, you know, is there some other factor that makes a difference or not? Um, but today, there's a fear of making that decision, right? Um, and I think there's a, there's a difference between organizational transformation, which is I have a business. How do I change it? And building an entirely new business. And this is sort of the difference between uh, you know, a digital native company versus a company that's trying to do a digital transformation, right? We, we see this kind of over and over, which is um, that, you know, our electric grid is the grid that we have. And building it the first time is different in terms of the challenges from, okay, you have electricity, so why should I deal with the uh, challenges of new generation, et cetera, right? So it's, it's a very different kind of a problem when you're deploying something for the first time versus trying to change it. And I think that's the key difference between climate sustainability driven transformation versus the first time we were building that trucking company when trucks were new. It, the timing's good because yeah. lots of these companies have made very public statements about what their intentions are. And so now they need to backfill those statements with actions to reach them in theory. You're seeing a lot of that getting walked back or obfuscated, but, um, but yes, I guess that's true, right? If, you, if, if your marketing team and your CEO needs to get out and say, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2050 or 2040 or 2030, Someone needs to explain how. Yep. <laughs> like that's part of it. You also said something that harkened back to what we were talking about before, which is like at the core of what led you to be a co-founder of this company was this simple problem of de decision making, which leads me to think that this is sort of like a, there is a potential for a ubiquitous use case in this if that's the core problem that you're solving. <laughs> Why are you? And you also said that like when you there's almost this sort of magical quality when you show these people this data, they end up making these decisions. Mm -hmm. 
Why are you the people that are best suited to be the arbiters of better decision making? And don't just tell me because it's the data. Like it's not just the data, it's a combination of the data and the people. So don't go down that just route. Yeah, no, it, it's absolutely the the people. I think this is one of those things where you need to have a, a deep understanding of how enterprises work. You need to have a deep understanding of how people think and make decisions. And then you have to have a deep understanding of the kind of technical decisions that these companies are making. And so that's where um, my two co-founders and I, as well as the team that we've built, have this really kind of operationally diverse background in terms of working with enterprises and understanding enterprise decision-making, understanding how people make decisions and how people deal with complex situations and distill them down to just the piece of the world that uh, is going to affect what they're doing or not doing. Um, And then being able to encode uh, the technical complexity uh, that those decisions entail and providing the ability for non-technical decision-makers to make decisions that are based on the technical outcomes and the technical considerations. Um, I think there's a lot of people in the world who can help solve this problem. We're one group that's uh, that's solving it. But to be honest, like there is a lot of changes that needs to happen in the next 20 years. We're not going to be able to solve all, to serve all of them. So absolutely, there's going to be multiple teams that are attacking this from different angles that are going to have slightly different solutions that are all going to lead to capital being spent on solving the problem. That's a, that is a very measured and um, humble answer. And I appreciate that. I'm, I'm lucky in that I get to talk to a lot of people that are doing incredible things, right? This, this podcast affords me a vantage into that. And I'm always curious about the balance between the ambition and the audacity that it takes to say, we're going to change the way that Fortune 100 companies make decisions with the personal humility or sort of self-awareness of saying like, well, there's one of many, you know, it's a big enough pie for everyone. Given the state that we are in right now, like thinking in a macro scale, where is humanity right now? In terms of like, are we going to make it kind of a, kind of a thing? Yeah, kind of. Right. Like, I think that that's, every generation feels that that's in peril in one way or another and ours is no different, but it certainly feels like with the looming specter of climate change. And we haven't even talked about how this platform seems like the perfect application for artificial intelligence. If you are going to take all of these different variables and synthesize them into a specific decision-making framework, but leaving that aside, like we got a couple of, we got a couple of years, decade or so to change the way that we live on earth. Otherwise, according to the science, we will impend. We will enact a lot of catastrophic and cascading um, eventualities. So like, do we need an overabundance of ambition and audacity to see us through? Is that necessary? I think what we need is, you know, when you're starting a new project, you just can't sit down. You're just like super excited about it. You're like, I'm just going to get this done. Um, I think that's the attitude we need, right? Which is, how do I make this decision really quickly so I can get to the next step? How do I get this first step done so I can get to the step after that? You sort of need an impatience. Um, I think that there's certainly a lot of grand pronouncements that, you know, hey, we're going to be net zero by a certain date. And hey, we're still building this piece of uh, software, this hardware that's going to save the planet and do X, Y, and Z. But I think what's really necessary is building momentum. And building momentum comes 
step by step by step by saying, okay, I've taken the first step. I can't wait for the second. I've taken the step, second step. I can't wait for the third. Um, that's really what we're focusing on building. He is helping build that momentum for companies, right? That yes, you don't have the data to predict exactly what this big trucking network 40 years from now is going to look like. But the data is good enough for you to take that first step where you buy 10 trucks, deploy them on a route and see what happens. That data is going to get you to your second step. That data is going to get you to your third step. That's how we think about it. I think that is really the thing that's needed. You know, we live in a world where proof is necessary in many cases, right? Prove to me that doing something as simple as building a bike lane is going to lead to more people biking. But I'm not going to build a bike lane until you prove to me that there's going to be more, more cyclists on the road. But that's a world that also has like, you know, that, that will make a logical outcome. Right. Or that yeah. will make a logical decision that will, that will look at data and say, I, given this data, I will make a rational decision. I wish that that was the world that demonstrably we could agree on that we live in, but there's mm-hmm. quite a lot of evidence to the contrary. And yeah. I think that because you're framing this as like, it's a business choice. Yes. We're going to save you money. We're going to increase yes. your profit. That is the way to align this paradigm of sustainability with the incentives of capitalism. That's correct. And the one thing that we haven't talked about that really tips the scale on that. So just going back to your example about, you know, well, what happens if the decision turns out to be uh, 10 cents more expensive per, per unit or per mile or whatever, why am I going to make that decision? If you are investing in a factory, for example, you want that factory, that facility, that truck, whatever it is, to be useful and generating revenue for its entire useful lifetime. But if there are rules, for example, in California around truck emissions or in the EU about the carbon content of imported materials that limit the lifetime of that facility, of that asset to less than its useful lifetime, you're going to have a stranded asset. And so there's now a pressure where 2050 is well within the lifetime of a factory that's being built today. 2050 is kind of within the next five or six years, within the lifetime of a truck or a plane or a ship that you're buying. It's well within the lifetime of some of these decisions that are being made. So a lot of this really is, do I really have the confidence that business as usual is going to carry me through to 2050? Mm -hmm. That's another big factor, right? Is that the math might not close today. It might be really close to closing. But if I invest in the thing of yesteryear, am I going to be stuck with assets that 10 or 15 years from now nobody wants, that I can't use anymore. That's another big factor. Um, and standard assets are really starting to scare folks. And they're really starting to scare the investors, the insurers, the reinsurers who are saying, well, I don't know if I'm going to write this project anymore because who knows what the cash flow is going to look like 10, 15, 20 years down. The- so if we were going to take these these forces and you being the the person that sits at the you have a vantage point of understanding how these different forces will impact eventual outcomes, right? We're going to green light capitals. You understand the relative importance of these different forces. And so let's take like four of the major ones. Policy, sort of what the government can do. Top-down market forces. So the the investor market of the world that will say, I want to pour money into technologies to do this the um, risk mitigation world of the world, and you mentioned the insurance side, but sort of the people that are going to underwrite it, or 
the consumer side. So you've got politics, you've got giant pools of money, you have the risk mitigators, and then you've got the consumers. And you could supercharge one of these four so that it would be just all in on climate positive projects. Which one of those four do you think would have the biggest impact? That's a tough one. I think that it would probably be the investors, the insurers, with a close second being policy. Because at the end of the day, if the capital is available to do the right thing, that's where the money is going to go. And where we're seeing policy having the biggest impact is in adjusting what those costs and outcomes look like in the same way that an investor um, is saying, yeah, we'll give you money to do X, but not Y. The IRA says, we'll give you money to do X, but not Y. And the methane fine says, we'll take money away if you do X. Mm-hmm. And CBAM in, in Europe says, we'll take money away if we do X. And so what they're really doing is changing the playing field of capital, right? Saying there is capital here, there is not capital there. And so that flow, because you need resources to do things in the real world, that flow of where the resources are and what the resources are available to do, that I think is the biggest guiding force. Consumer behavior, by the way, is the same thing, right? Is if you build a product that no one wants to buy, what you're basically saying is there's no money in what you're building. Um, so it all comes down to, is there money to do the right thing? Okay. Okay. But the investors are closer to the project than the policymakers by one step, and they're closer to the project by a few steps than the end consumer. Okay. I think now, after talking about this for 45 minutes, I have a, I, I'm, I'm much less confused. So I, I appreciate well, that. <laughs> I appreciate that, Nick. I'm And I'd love to just see, I'd love to track this to see how you guys go. It's like, it's, you know, your attainable market is the people who make decisions. I mean, it's the, the pie is as big as you want to be. So I'm, I can't wait to see what happens where you guys take this. Well, thank you. It's, it's definitely ambitious for, for a startup. That's why we're, you know, we're, we're being humble about what we can do and, and where we're focused on. I think, uh, uh, you know, the, the real world has real world impacts and the better decision-making support you can give for those kind of folks who are, who are making those decisions, um, the better off the real world will be for everybody. I would like to live in that real world where people make good decisions <laughs> based on good data. So let, let us both manifest it. All right, Karthik, thank you so much for coming aboard today and, um, and sharing with us your vision for this reasonable future and the work that you're doing with Actual to create it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me and... That's it. Thank you so much for listening to today's pod. That was my conversation with Karthik Balakarishnan, the co-founder and president of Actual. We really appreciate your support. And if you're still here, you're one of our truth faithful. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you can, tell a friend. That's the best way that people find out about our podcast. Stay tuned next week for another story of somebody who is working to save the planet. 